It's hard to sing lyrics sometimes that uh, are so superlative. You remember that song we were just singing has that lyric in there, Never will I seek the glory that was never meant for me. Always heavenward reflecting, all to Jesus to receive. I mean, I, I'm singing that and I'm just thinking, Lord, that's, that's my bold claim. That, that's what I want to do. That's how I want to live. But I know that I've sought the glory that only he deserves. And that's, um, that's the challenge for us. I think I told you as a congregation uh, a few years back that one of my favorite books that was handed me was sent by my father to me when I was living above the Arctic Circle and brand newly saved. With the, it was with the Air Force. He sent me this book called How to Stay and No to a Stubborn Habit by Erwin Lutzer. <laughs> and it's, it's been a staple book. It's, it's really, um, it's old school stuff, you know. Uh, not as old as perhaps the Puritans, but it comes right out of the same marrow. And uh, in that book, he, um, he has this well-worn couple of paragraphs, at least well-worn in my volume. He says, does temptation ever lose its power? Not completely. Even when we're motivated by desire to please God, we experience conflict because God often requires obedience that runs counter to human motivations. Jesus himself expressed this conflict in John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He voluntarily set aside any personal ambitions and submitted himself to his Father's will. The conflict between your immediate interests and God's long-range goals is never just going to go away. But there is an answer. For when you begin to commit yourself to God, the Holy Spirit begins to resolve these conflicts. He pulls the fragments of your life together. He shows you his truth as a standard for making choices. He teaches you a single-mindedness that you never knew before. He shows you the rewards of living in his love and justice. And after a while, you begin to realize that in many instances, what God requires of you is really... Hold on, I've got my page here. Where is it? It's really what you want to do, just as the psalmist wrote... Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. It's true that when you study the Word of God the way we have been studying it, and you sort of take a principle like, nine, like Luke nine twenty three, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, it gets a little difficult because each one of you, especially those who have spoken to me about it, have been going home and into your week with these principles of self-denial And we have found exactly uh, what we're made of. And and that is to say we are feeble and we are challenged to obey and subdue the will and bring ourselves into alignment with the love of God and to desire what he desires simply because we are yet feeble and untrained and unlearned and unwilling and in every way weak. And yet, with the Holy Spirit's power... We are united in Christ and empowered to serve and to see these things the way we ought to see them. And we can see our sinfulness subdued in the grace of Christ more and more each day until we meet our Lord of glory. And so what have we been doing? We've been looking at practical ways to go about the death of self. 
the practical steps for dying to self that make our lives more about Christ and less about us. And so take your Bibles and look at Luke 9 for just a moment. If you're a guest with us, this will be a reminder to you of where we've been. Luke chapter 9, uh, we, we had been in a regular expositional study of Luke's gospel, and it's been a thrill, but we've camped out here a little bit, because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, while speaking to his disciples in private on a couple of fronts, and then speaking to the crowds en masse, he says to all of them, verse 23 of Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me. So you want to be a follower of Christ, you want to say you are attached to Christ, you want to say you love Christ, he's your Lord, he's your master, he's your savior, redeemer, and friend. If anyone wishes to say those things, to come after me, he says, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so we've been looking at the practical steps for doing that. Let me just give you the, <clears throat> the ones we've dealt with so far now. We've looked at four of them. The first is that every day, if you're going to die to self, you're going to have to deal with self-reliance. And the way you deal with self-reliance is to be dependent utterly upon God. So we pray daily for spiritual wisdom, understanding, guidance. We pray daily for a reliance upon the truth, upon the Lord, so that our, our understanding of things is leaning on God and God alone to lean on his truth, to glean from his truth, to gain discernment from his truth, to put truth up as a grid for life. And that led to the second practical step, which, to or, which was to orient all of your life in a disciplined fashion so that it promotes the advancement of truth in your life, so that it promotes a truth-filled, truth-saturated way of life. This is what the Christian has that is different from your old life from the world around you. They don't know truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They make up their own truth. They, they want self-exalting, self-relying truth. That's what we're like apart from the grace of Christ. And so if you're going to kill self-reliance, you pray daily for spiritual understanding. And the second was to orient your life toward the truth. And that begins to chip away at self-indulgence. If you have to discipline your life for the purpose of promoting godliness, then you're not going to indulge in every way the other ways that you used to live. Your life is going to become around, uh, centered around and orbit around the truth. In fact, when you orient your life this way in a disciplined fashion, what happens is your friendships begin to change because people who have no interest in the truth at that level, who won't embrace the truth, who have secret lives of sin on the side, or who have a secret desire to, to associate with Jesus but not really live for him, they start to fade away because all you want to do is, is orient the drive train of your life toward truth. So scripture fills your home, scripture fills your life, and your friendships begin to change. When someone comes to Christ, I often will say to them, you know, how, how are your how are your associations changing? Are you gravitating toward the people of God? And, and do you see your unbelieving friends of your old life as a gospel opportunity, an evangelistic endeavor? Or do you still spend time with them the way you used to spend time with them? In fact, I think that's a reason to question the genuineness of someone's conversion because the Bible says that there's no association or harmony between light and darkness. So if you've become light in the Lord... 
If you've been delivered, as the Bible teaches, from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the dear Son of God, then everything has to reorient, everything has to change. And if you, if you love still being comfortable around the world when we're commanded not to, you either ought to be admitting that you still have too much love of the world and you need to confess it and get some help to move out of that, or uh, you may need to question whether you really did come to Christ. Because one of the things the Spirit produces in a new believer is a love for God's people. A love for God's people, to be with God's people, learn with God's people, serve God's people, uh, in, be in enriched fellowship with God's people. Even the, even the fact that the church is a messy place, full of sinners saved by grace, doesn't deter a true believer because the Spirit of God moves us toward one another. The third practical step was to allow the truth to indict and correct your heart when you hear it. This is the death of self-exaltation. So pray daily for spiritual understanding. It kills self-reliance. Orient your life toward truth. It kills self-indulgence. Allow the truth when you hear it to indict you and correct your behavior and your heart. That's the death of self-exaltation. You don't argue with the truth. As Todd said, you, you, you own it. You open your heart to it. You don't resist it and push back against it. This is how you die to self-exaltation. We spent a lot of time on that one. Some of, them, some of you wrote little notes and, and uh, came up to me, and that whole idea of the truth indicting you was uh, maybe for you a new way to look at how you let the truth have its way in your heart. It needs to indict, and it does indict. And uh, you can see now what's wrong with the church uh, in evangelicalism is that you know everybody... In the, in the shallow sort of pragmatism of evangelicalism has gotten used to the idea that the truth never indicts. The truth never speaks something straightforward and exposes your heart. So the truth gets uh, a dimmer switch put on it and pretty soon there's no recognizable clarity in the church. The fourth then was to permanently seal up sin's portals in your life. You want to die to self? You want more of Christ and less of you? You've got to seal up the, the portals through which sin comes into your life. I gave you a bunch of them and we finished them off last time. Friendships. You must be careful about friendships. We looked at defiling environments and, and even media and what you take into your mind and into your heart. We looked at idleness We looked at leisure and fun, things that can become idols that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but things that that you begin to worship, you begin to bow down to, that, that take a higher place of affection than Christ. We looked at unchecked resentment and how that can can be a portal through which self deception comes. Intellectual pride we looked at last time. We looked at um, family life. the strong relationships and family love that exists within a family dynamic, and even it extends to friendships, as I had said earlier, uh, you may at one point compromise the truth just to keep a family relationship intact, whereas Jesus will say in Luke chapter 14, if you don't love me more than these in such a way that it looks like they are the opposite, then you can't be my disciple. You must learn to have... Christ is your highest affection. Nothing else rises higher than him. No other love can captivate your attentions 
uh, over the top of Christ. And so when we identify these idolatries in our life to which we bow down instead of honoring Christ, we must go after them and close those portals. And we looked at the fear of man. Practical step number five. Practical step number five. Lose yourself in other people's needs. Lose yourself in other people's needs. If praying for spiritual understanding kills self-reliance, orienting your life toward truth kills self-indulgence, allowing truth to have its way with your heart, it kills self-exaltation, and permanently sealing up the portals in your life kills self-deception, and losing yourself in other people's needs will kill the death of self-interest. The death of self-interest. Temporal self-interests. Selfish ways of life. Look for a moment at a classic text we're all familiar with in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, you know it well, but it's, it's, it's needful that we look at it for a moment. We've looked at it already before, but here there is particular terminology that cuts right to the chase. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, here it is, but with humility of mind... Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. More important than yourselves. And then goes on to give the example of Christ himself. So, in whatever we're called to do, we need to jettison all conscientiousness that seeks to take from others for our own interests... The idea here then is to strive for the benefit of someone else. Our striving should be for the benefit of others. We could look at it from the other angle. We're not to consider ourselves more significant than the needs and spiritual growth of others. We're not to consider ourselves as more significant and our own needs and interests as more significant than than looking at someone else and seeing that they need something and helping alongside them, moving toward their life, upholding what is best and good for them. And so this is a humble perspective, counting others as more worthy of interest and consideration. Now this is not fostered in our culture at all, as you know, and in the church, it has become epidemic that we live in a prideful, sort of self-exalting culture and even a subculture within the church. It's a terrible thing, the way we market ourselves and brand ourselves and push ourselves forward. We, we, we send ourselves digitally right into everybody's face to show them how great we are with 140 characters to quote something pithy. We push ourselves into people's faces with what we write. We, we exalt ourselves, brand ourselves. We, we make sure we're marketed well. And we, we, have, we see no danger at all to the heart with this kind of thing. You may be indeed desired by a constituency that wants your stuff. And insofar as you get to serve the body of Christ with the work God's doing in your life, man, serve whatever it may take. But when you have no constituency demanding it and you decide you're going to be somebody, you open your heart to a thousand dangers. (coughs) 
Proverbs 8.13 says, God hates pride. Pride will bring dishonor. Boy, hasn't that been true in the church? Calamity and instability and insecurity come to the proud. Proverbs 15.25. Boy, hasn't that been true in the church? The proud heart receives such scathing language in the scriptures. Proverbs 16.5 says that these things are an abomination to the Lord. He hates pride. Think about that, beloved, for a moment. God hates self-interest. He hates it. He loves his people. And any time pride and self-interest takes a front seat, God loves his people and wants to root out that which he hates. He doesn't wink at pride. He doesn't think it casually a a mere weakness to be tolerated. He doesn't think it a back burner issue. It is right up front an abomination that brings calamity and stability and insecurity and dishonor. And it always ends in destruction and stumbling, Proverbs 16, 18. I think of the way sometimes the celebrity culture within the church acts, and I I am shocked not just by the activity of it, but I'm shocked by the, the absolute disregard for what the Bible promises always results. You will head to stumbling. Always. Anybody in human history or church history that's ever gotten around that? No. So 100% track record, always stumbling and destruction comes to the proud. Proverbs 18, 19, unimportant stature with humility is better than great riches and prestige with pride. You say, I always get treated like I'm unimportant. Good. Good. That's a good thing. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. What is our culture trying to do in the church? Well, I want everyone to speak well of me. I want them to think I'm the greatest this, the greatest that, the greatest this, the greatest that. No, it's a a good thing to have humility even if your stature in the eyes of others is unimportant. Notice Philippians 2, although Jesus existed in the form of God... That is to say, as the second member of the Trinity, he existed eternally. He's the God of the universe. He's ancient of days. He is robed in splendor. He is finding undiminished pleasure in himself with the Trinitarian union. And yet he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be clutched. We could say it this way. He he didn't consider heavenly glories as something to be coveted. Listen, above other redemptive realities. He didn't think or consider that the heavenly glories which were his by right were something to be coveted when there were other redemptive needs at stake. So what's the implication for us? Is that we're not to consider personal Earthly glories as something to be coveted above the good that we can bring to someone else's life. Beloved, think about that. 
We are not to consider personal earthly glories as something to be coveted above the good that we can bring to someone else's life. Christ looked to the things of others. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9, in in a context where Paul is defending the ministry of the gospel that was given to him, he gives this great explanation. It almost seems like a passing explanation, but it is theologically rich. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, might become rich. Look, you had a need. I had a need. He took upon himself our need. And it was regardless of the cost to his own interests and his own rights and his own privileges. Implication? Look, when someone else's need collides with your interests... You must begin to set aside your own interests and your own privileges to sacrificially meet another's need. This is what love does. This is what it does to get, means to get lost in the needs of other people. You might be thinking in your mind, how does that happen? How do I even begin to think and to live that way consistently? Well, you remember practical step number three? You've got to allow the truth to indict and correct your life. You probably, like me, ought to regularly and carefully go back over, first of all, who you were before Christ. You need to regularly and carefully and consistently go back over who you were before Christ. I love the words of John Newton, as quoted by uh, Reverend Thomas Jones in 1767. This is what he wrote that had been said by John Newton, Oh, to be little in our eyes, This is the groundwork of every grace. This leads to a continual dependence upon the Lord Jesus. This is the spirit which he has promised to bless. And that this temper is so hard to attain and preserve is a striking proof of our depravity. For are we not sinners? Were we not rebels and enemies before we knew the gospel? And have we not been unfaithful and backsliding and unprofitable ever since? What a line right there. Oh, I know what I was like before I came to Christ. Yeah, but what have you been like after you came to Christ? A mess. That was Todd's word. A mess. John Newton says, Are we not redeemed by the blood of Jesus? And can we stand a single moment except he upholds us? Have we anything which we've not received? Or have we received anything which we have not abused? Why then is dust and ashes proud? Wow. Todd, you got to put that to music. You got to put that to music. I'd love to sing that. One of my favorite songs comes from decades ago, Were It Not For Grace. The chorus says this, were it not for grace, I could tell you where I'd be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. And I know how that would go, the writer says. 
the battles I would face because I'd be forever running but losing the race were it not for grace. And not only carefully considering who we were before Christ, but if you're going to do this work of of dying to self and considering someone else's needs above your own, you're going to have to do a regular inventory of the ways that we neglect the specific needs of people. The specific ways we neglect the needs of others because we want to make room for our private universe. So here's a quick spiritual inventory of a few things I just began to think about with regard to my own heart. And it's just, I had to stop the list. It just got too painful. Here's a quick spiritual inventory. Do I neglect to pray for others? Do I neglect to pray for others? I kind of get shocked when I see what Paul says about his prayer life. You just study his prayer life, you will be stunned. But 1 Thessalonians 3.10, listen to this. We kept praying night and day most earnestly that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul says every night and every day was on our minds and on our hearts and even in our formal prayer schedule at times, we earnestly prayed that we might be able to get there and be with you or by letter or by message, complete what's lacking in your faith. I just want to see some good come to your life. How about do I neglect to spiritually challenge others? Say, what do you mean? Discipleship. Hebrews 10, 24, you're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. I've asked you this before. When someone's been with you, are they better spiritual? Are they, are they better off spiritually? Are they greater strengthened? Even if you didn't talk about anything spiritual, just watching your life, are you ready to be available to them, to disciple them, to reach out to them, to stir them up to love and good deeds? You even think about it. Hebrews 10, 24, we are to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's the joy and privilege of the body of Christ. Do I neglect my role in the family? Am I getting lost in the needs of my family? In my role? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. There was purpose It was initiation. He was in his role, meeting the needs, whatever the need was, even if it cost him his self-interest. You wives, Ephesians 5, 22, you are to subject yourself, to submit yourself to your husband as to the Lord. Whatever the Lord calls you to do, whatever he asks you to do, you bring yourself under it with a right heart. This is is what we're to do, and we don't neglect that. And if we neglect that, that is to say that we're not willing to be lost in the needs of someone God has placed right there in our life. Man, we live in a selfish culture, and, and we just, at times, you could walk into our homes as Christians and not find a whole lot different in the first 10 minutes. That's it. That's sad. Parents, are you bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, even if it costs you your self-interest? Are you getting lost in the needs of your children? Here's another question. Do I neglect to meet particular needs which I'm tailor-made to satisfy? Do I neglect particular needs that someone else has that I'm tailor-made 
to satisfy. You say, what do you mean? Well, look at 1 John 3 for a moment. 1 John chapter 3. This is just a great section on what it means to love one another. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this. You want to know what love looks like? That he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. By contrast, verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Here it is. When when you ask this question, do I neglect to meet the particular needs of someone that I'm tailor-made to satisfy those needs, what... What John says here is that the love of Christ in its most basic form manifests itself in this, that when someone has a need and it's obvious by the circumstances and, and you have what it takes to reach out to them and instead you close your inward life toward them. That, that's the term here, to close your compassion in the gut level. You feel nothing. You think nothing. Never forget the image in my mind. You know, I think I've said this before <clears throat> to our congregation. Sort of a true confession. You know, I, my uh, Christianity as a, as a pastor many years ago, I'm driving around the big city and there's panhandlers all over the place. And of course you... It's true, if they don't work, they shouldn't eat, and they seem to be healthy walking along, and it's become really a business for many of them. It's poor stewardship to involve yourself in those, entangle yourself in those kind of things, but there are some cases where that's not the case. People aren't liars, they just left. And um, particularly in the case of children or women, you know, destitute, left, left alone. And I remember getting out of a discipleship group at a local restaurant and getting in my car and I could see in the rearview mirror this obviously very destitute woman, uh, life trashed, tears streaming down her face. It wasn't anything contrived. It was, it was horrific. And in, because of the self-interest and cynicism that I had not paid careful attention to, I just pulled out and left. And that image in that rearview mirror of her face as I was pulling away was... Is, is emblazoned upon my heart and mind. Because while I, I do believe there's, there are situations where stewardship is critical and, and people lie and cheat, we get them here at churches all the time, at our, even at our church, but there are moments when, when your heart of compassion closes, there's no twinge of it, you're just wrapped up in self-interest and cynicism. And, and that's a moment where the love of God could have had expression in some way. And, um, you know, it, it just began through the year and has through the years just worked me over, not necessarily in all those kinds of circumstances because sometimes it's hard to tell, but, but this passage came to mind. If you have the world's goods and, 
and someone is need. You behold your brother in need. Here, of course, is talking about in the church. As a sign of true Christianity, you behold your brother in Christ in need, a family member, a child, someone in the church, and you have a tailor-made way to meet it. And for self-interest, you close your heart of compassion. How then is that an expression of the love of God? How can we know God's love abides in you? Do you neglect to meet particular needs which you're tailor-made to satisfy? Say, how do I know? Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. If the only reason you wouldn't satisfy is because you're very aware by the Spirit's conviction that it's all self-interest. And you've asked the Lord, and it's still a fight. It's a dogfight, and it's all about self-interest. Then you ought to push through that and meet your brother or sister in need. Do I neglect to use spiritual gifts? Do I neglect to use spiritual gifts? I mean, you come. You you come to the body of Christ. You come to our meetings. You come to a Bible study. Maybe you hang out at some women's tea or some men's seminar or whatever. And you hear the teaching of the Word of God. And you're in Christ. And you've been given enabling graces to edify the body. But you don't like to do that. Because you like to come in, sit down, and then exit and go have your muffin. And that's all you do. You know what the scriptures teach? 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a special enablement, employ it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Employ it, and then this phrase, in serving one another. As a good steward. You have a stewardship. Do you neglect that? One final one on the inventory list, and this is where my pen dropped off. (laughs) Do I neglect to live a holy life as an example to others? Do I neglect to live a holy life as an example to others? Uh, I know that in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul is speaking to a young man, Timothy, who's a pastor, so... I don't believe youth groups in high school and college ought to use this verse particularly for them because you're not a pastor, and even though you might be near or around Timothy's era, he was a pastor being written to about this. Nonetheless, whatever mantra 1 Timothy 4.12a has become to all kinds of young people, hey, don't look down on my youthfulness, the second half of the verse is absolutely riveting. Because here is the contrast. If you don't want anyone to look down on youthfulness, here's what you're supposed to do at the beginning of your Christian life. And here's how you're supposed to live the rest of it. In speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Show yourself an example. Do you live a holy life as an example to others? Listen, that's how you get lost in the needs of others. Don't people need to see a holy example, don't they? Isn't it enriching to see a young widow singing those truths as an example of holy living and trust in God? Isn't that an enriching? I'm sitting there, I'm encouraged. You others who have said goodbye to a spouse, you're encouraged. Living a holy life, not faithlessness. Living a holy life, not worldliness. We have modern day evangelical church life that's just, that loves the world. 
doesn't even have one foot in the church anymore. It just says it has one foot in the church, but it's not. There's no foot in the church. Both feet are in the world, and they're just still wearing Jesus patches. It's wicked. It's not an example. You're not serving the body of Christ. You're not getting lost in the needs of others. You're lost in your own needs. It's all about you. Christ coveted something more. Christ coveted not what he deserved in heaven, not even what was rightfully his in glory. He coveted something more. He coveted this wonderful joy set before him, Hebrews 12 says. And we're to fix our eyes on Jesus who as the author and perfecter of our faith endured the cross and despised the shame of it and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? He went all the way. He loved us to the utmost, John 13, 1. And so we are to consider him, Hebrews 12 says, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There it is. He coveted something more. He met spiritual needs, beloved. This is what he did. It was for him conforming to the will of his Father. For us, we're not, we're not clutching what we deserve. We don't deserve anything. We're not hanging on to things that we have a right to. We don't have a right to anything. If you want fairness, I'll tell you what it is. Fairness is eternity in hell. That's fairness. You think that you deserve something besides that? As the Puritans used to say, go make your case to God. And he'll give you whatever you deserve. Go make your case. We're grabbing on to things we have no right to and do not deserve as as things that we're to hold in in, uh, possession when someone else has needs. Listen, if you want to live a life more of Christ and less of yourself, this practical step is critical. You need to lose your life in the needs of others. Lose it in the needs, the spiritual good, the blessing, even the physical needs of people as an expression of the love of God. Take care of people. Take care of one another. Minister to one another. Whatever it might cost you, and believe me, it will, because God is going to put people in your life that cost you time, and it costs you privilege, and it costs you your, your sleep sometimes, and it costs you at times uh, the, the strength in your bones. Sometimes it costs you the peace of heart because you're going to be burdened and awake at night. Sometimes it's going to cost you those hobbies that you have. Other times it's going to cost you uh, even at times the the vacations that you like to take. It might cost you some resources where you, as a family, you set aside sacrificially and, and you don't go after the things you were all planning because there's a need over here and you just channel those resources with your children toward that need. It's costly, it hurts, it's painful. But it's other-centered. It's what God calls us to And this is what Jesus meant when he said, you die daily. You take up your cross daily, not just bearing his reproach, but following him in whatever that means as a cost to you and me. It costs everything. He laid his life down. He let go of all of it. You say, well, I'm afraid, Pastor, that if I 
If I let go of everything, God may take everything. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But he will never take himself from you. And if you have Christ, what else do you need? In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 3 just to finish today. 1 Corinthians 3. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 because the Corinthians were so about gouging and fighting and grabbing everything for themselves. Verse 18, don't deceive yourself. Let no man deceive himself. Any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so he can become wise. The wisdom of the world, it's foolishness before God, for it is written, he's the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. They are useless. So then let no one boast in men, no self-interest, no arrogance, no pride. Look at this. For all things belong to you. What in the world do you mean all things belong to me? You just said give them away. You just said have no interest in them. All things that matter, all things that are eternal, all things that you ought to grab, all things you could never grab without Christ, all things that will bless you for an eternity. You want everything here? You're no fool if you give up what you cannot keep here to have what you cannot lose there. All things belong to you, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Don't you love it? Look at the state in which we live as Christians. There isn't anything that really matters that won't be a part of our life. There isn't anything that doesn't matter that you can't let go of because it doesn't matter. There isn't anything temporal you have to have when you have everything eternal. So why are you getting your claws out and grabbing for the interests here and now? Oh, I want to rest a little. <laughs> you want to rest a little? Well, how much more rest do you need in the temporal life when you have an eternal rest coming? What rest do you need? Paul said, I would, I would rather spend and be expended for your soul. Man, spend me, Lord. Spend me. Earthly energy? Man, let me use it up in the right way. Oh, sure. I, I like to relax and get some refreshment to the bones, maybe have a little extra money in the account, take a vacation. I like the fact that you get promoted at your job and it's achievement and excitement. Those are great things, the Bible says, richly to be enjoyed. But listen, beloved, we're talking about whether or not you can die to those things whether those things are instruments useful to the master for greater gospel work. Things that channel through your life, they don't become this bucket that you sit and enjoy. They channel through your life to the blessing of the gospel and eternal things. That's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about throwing ashes on your face and dust on your head and wearing old clothes and walking around morose. When we say die to self, we're just saying, look, if these things captivate your heart and their higher affections in Christ. Here's one practical step to die to self. Lose yourself in the needs of everyone around you, whatever it may cost you, and watch what the Lord does. 
with your life. How thrilling if we as a church would not be known for the neglect of the needs of others. There are some in this church who have taught us day in and day out. I don't know what goes on in their heart. They're not saying they're perfect, but I'll tell you this. It's humbling. Some people have gotten this principle and they've died to self in ways that the rest of us ought to watch, go to school on. You pray daily for spiritual understanding, you kill self-reliance. You orient your life toward truth, you kill self-indulgence. You allow truth to ransack your heart, you kill self-exaltation. You permanently seal up the portals, you're working against self-deception. You lose yourself and other people's needs, that's a death of self-interest, and oh, how much we need that. This is Thanksgiving week. Wednesday night, we're going to have some wonderful testimonies of what God has done. It's going to be a great celebration of the Lord's faithfulness around His table. Next Sunday, I'm going to carry on these practical steps, one of which will be Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful practical step to dying to self-gratitude. We'll talk about it next time. Just a few more left. (laughs) Enjoying the list? It's going well, isn't it? All right. Well, let's bow together. Gracious Lord, all we can say is we're sorry. We're so sorry. Please forgive us for this clutching of things that are of our interest and yet stepping on others to have them, neglecting others. We don't want to be that way, Lord. We want to be more and more like you, conformed to you. So much complexity in the world in which we live, so much difficulty in gospel ministry to the world, so much challenge in the church with so many people alongside one another. But this bright light of losing ourselves in the needs of one another just brings you glory and honor and is used by you for the light of the gospel. So brighten us up as we die to self-interest. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, thinks they do, or doesn't even claim it, may your mercy awake them. May your mercy run to them. May your mercy cover them. Convict them of their sin and the self-interest that has kept them from the gospel. Break their heart over their sin and pour into their inner life your love and power and grace that they might be broken over their rebellion and love of sin and love of self. May they confess it to you and reach out to the glorious hope that is found only in you. May they not wait. And we ask these things for your honor's sake and for the power and strength and promise that we have that this week we'll even be able to renew our spiritual strength in these things. And it's in the cause of all that that we lay these prayers before your feet. In your name, amen.